2: and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a Data Privacy Analyst at and Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation, as well as any key developments and decisions by supervisory authorities. With me today as my co-host is Jamal Ahmed, who is a Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at KZient Privacy Experts. He is an established and comprehensively qualified privacy professional with a demonstrable track record solving enterprise-wise data privacy and data security challenges for SMEs through complex global organizations. Jamal is a certified information privacy manager, certified information privacy professional, certified EU GDPR practitioner, Master NLP practitioner, Prince2 practitioner, and he holds a Bachelor of Arts in Business with Law. He is a revered global privacy thought leader, world-class trainer, and published author for publications such as Thomson Reuters, The Independent, Euronews, as well as numerous industry publications. He makes regular appearances on the media on television, radio, and in print, and has been dubbed the king of GDPR by the BBC. To date, he has provided privacy and GDPR compliance solutions to organisations across six continents and in over 30 jurisdictions, helping to safeguard the personal data of over a billion data subjects worldwide. Thank you, Jamal. Thanks for joining. I'm impressed I
0: got through that without stopping. Thank you very much. You always do a great job. You know, I've got some news for us on this episode. We've just smashed through two and a half thousand downloads on the privacy pros podcast so really happy about that
2: is that two and a half thousand total downloads that's great there's
0: more than that now but yes we've smashed through that milestone now yay two and a
2: half thousand people worldwide listening fans We're in about 50 countries, is that right?
0: Just 53 countries when I checked last night. We're in over 53 countries now. So yeah, it's going out far and wide.
2: I wonder who the furthest away is. If anyone's in New Zealand, I'd like to know. Or Hawaii, or just anywhere really far away. I want to know how far away we're reaching. That would be cool. Our guest today, very excited to have him with us. Our guest today is Dmitry Nimorovsky. He is the co-founder and COO of Atacama, an innovative data security company that provides file-level encryption solution like nothing else available on the market. Atacama eliminates the needs for passwords, does not rely on identity and access management controls, does not disrupt user workflows or how users interact with their files. The solution offers customizable security policies to best fit individualized business needs and use cases. Atacama has raised $10 million for the company and has a team size of 26. Dimitri describes himself as a recovering attorney who became a serial entrepreneur. Prior to co-founding Atacama, Dimitri spent 15 years practicing regulatory and enforcement law, most recently at Bingham McCutcheon, where he represented large financial institutions in high stakes matters. Wow. Welcome, Dimitri.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: (laughs) How long have you been in recovery for?
3: I've been clean for about 4,362 days and I have a sponsor. Very proud of that. Congratulations on your milestone there. Thank uh, you. Passing the you. user count and uh, you know, I celebrate every day that I do not practice law. Thank you for that.
2: It'll be really interesting getting to know a bit more about your change from law. Cause we do get a lot of, I think people in the privacy world who are lawyers or trained as lawyers, and then they move into privacy and security be really interesting to hear a bit more about your story. But first, we always start off with an icebreaker question on this podcast. So today's is, what was the last thing that made you laugh?
3: Well, the last thing that made me laugh was this introduction, I guess, you know, the recovering (laughs) attorney thing. But uh, so I have two children, a daughter who is 16 and a son that's 14. And they make me laugh every day. You know, children are unique in that regard. And, you know, there was a show that was uh, Kids Say the Darnest Thing. It's so true. You know, it's innocent. It's inquisitive. With me, that's really my favorite is the kids and the things that they make me do and the way that they make me feel. And more often than not, I appreciate that.
2: Especially that age. They're just trying to think for themselves.
3: Maybe too much.
2: Yeah. I've got little siblings who are 13, 12 and 11. And I went and took them all three of them out last week and I'm still exhausted.
3: Exactly. Yeah. See, But you had the opportunity to give them back. I, I can't give my children back. It's, it's done, so.
2: <laughs> That's true. It, it did make me kind of go and apologize to my parents. Like, <laughs> sorry, didn't realize how difficult this
3: was. Exactly.
2: <laughs> but no, it's great. So we heard a little bit about Atacama in the introduction, but can you tell us a bit more about how it works?
3: Of course. So what's interesting about encryption, if you think about encryption as a technology, right? Mm-hmm. Encryption has been around for thousands of years, right? You look back to C periods and, uh, you know, the Romans and Caesar, people used uh, encryption back then, right? It was a cipher. You would switch around a few letters. Granted, back then, not everyone read, but, you know, those who did, you know, you would try to trick them. And the whole purpose of encryption is to prevent the unauthorized third party from being able to view whatever it is that you've encrypted. And encryption has been incredibly useful. It's been purposeful over the millennia that it's been around. And fast forward to the 20th century, encryption became something that became a necessity within the digital domain, right? We may not know it. Everyone on this video call may not know it, but we use encryption on a daily basis, right? When we unlock our smartphones and when we unlock our computers, we're decrypting the contents of yeah. the information that is on those devices. And that's cool. And encryption is really important to privacy, to security. Right. generally speaking. The problem with encryption is from a technology standpoint, we've really diminished the power of encryption. Here's what I mean specifically. By virtue of the fact that we've logged into our machines, we've entered our username and password, we've effectively wholesale decrypted all of the contents on the hard drive within our machine. So you go from 100% secure to 0% secure. As soon as you've logged in, everything's available to you. So why have encryption providers, why have the computer manufacturers made it so simple? Well, because from an end user standpoint, the UX UI around encryption has to be seamless, has to be transparent, otherwise, guess what? No one's going to want to use it yeah. or they'll find, you know, they'll circumvent ways of having to follow the, the policies and procedures set out with encryption. And so by connecting encryption to a really seamless UX UI, you really diminish the power of encryption. What we've done is when we designed comma we said to ourselves, well, how can we design a system that is not tied to those credentials, that is not tied to those identity and access management username and password credentials? And what we said to ourselves was, can we split encryption keys, right? Can we cut them up and split them out? very akin to public-private key pairings, right? So if you look at, you know, everyone talks about Bitcoin and blockchain these days. If you think about it, right, you have this public, quote, ledger. It has a value of over a trillion dollars and it's being secured by splitting keys, right? You as a key holder, you have the private key associated with a public key, right? And if you lose that private key, you pretty much lose access to your Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But the power there really is the fact that it's open And we can dare the whole world, and in fact, the whole world is being dared, go ahead, try to access this thing that is being secured by this public-private key pair. We said to ourselves, well, can we do the same thing conceptually to passwords, right? So if you think of an encryption key, an encryption key really is a password. And we said to ourselves, yeah, we think we can do it. And the way we've done it is with our software, each file or each object, if you will, is encrypted with its own unique encryption key. And we utilize an AES standard with fifths, right? So it's not like we've come up with our own encryption algorithm. We basically repurpose what is considered military-grade encryption. That encryption key is then cut up into those pieces and distributed across physical devices controlled by the user. So instead of having to remember a password, instead of relying on your username and password or any central key store or any central identity and access management system, you're relying on your physical devices. So if you think of an attack and the way most attacks these days are perpetrated, it's really a social engineering attack. It's trying to fish someone, trying to get them to click on something. You introduce that bad element into the environment and now they pretty much have free reign. Well, with our solution, even if I give you my login credentials, you'd be able to log into my machine, log into my cloud storage where I keep all my files. You'd be able to see all my information, but you wouldn't be able to decrypt it. And that's because with our software, you need to recombine those key shards some of which are on your phone, some of which are on your computer. And unless you're able to combine them, you'll never be able to decrypt. So we've really, if you look at the attack surface, we flipped it on its head. So I literally would need to steal someone's computer and their yeah. smartphone or hack into someone's computer and their smartphone. Not impossible, but incredibly complex in order to be able to decrypt anything.
2: That's really interesting, especially the other day I got a lot of notifications through Safari saying, oh, this password has been involved in a breach. This password is unsafe. So had I used your software, I wouldn't have had to sit there, start changing passwords, trying to remember, oh, this one's going to be slightly different. Oh, this one I put a capital in.
3: That's eventually yeah. the big picture, you know, of what we hope to accomplish is really the ability to. We walk around with these devices in the palms of our hands, which are really supercomputers, right? And probably 99% of the population uses them for social media, but they are, at the end of the day, supercomputers in the palms of our hands. And the power of having you as an individual and your authentication, as an example, or the ability to log in somewhere be distributed across your physical devices is way more secure than anything currently existing in the market. And big picture for Atacama, we want to be that company that secures the individual.
0: That sounds like an amazing solution to a very real and a very risky problems that a lot of businesses are facing. What's the ideal kind of size of business that you're working with at the moment?
3: So it's interesting. With our solution, it's not all or nothing right? So we have multinational entities that we work with that have deployed with a specific use case to several hundred employees. And then we have other companies that have deployed across the entirety of the organization, you know, let's say 1500 individuals. So it's interesting when we first brought the product to market, we thought, you know, we're going to tap into regulated companies, right? Banks, uh, things of that nature that are really highly regulated because they have all these compliance mandates. And what we learned was, it's almost counterintuitive, but these entities, right, which are highly regulated, they have so many regulations that they need to comply with. What we've discovered is that they almost comply on a very superficial level. In other words, they check the box because mm-hmm. these regulations are so onerous that they can't really effectively deploy security in depth in a way that a more nimble company that is not that could be regulated but just not so intensely regulated can comply with. So. We really don't have a particular industry that we focus on, or vertical for that matter. It really is use cases. And what comes up a lot, almost every company has, for example, human resources records, right? And you need to safeguard those. And obviously, in Europe, you have GDPR, which is probably the most advanced privacy regulation globally, right? And a lot of countries, including the US, are trying to emulate those. But ultimately, I can't think of a single entity that doesn't have something sensitive that they shouldn't be protecting.
0: Great. Thank you for explaining that to me. It's really interesting. Our audience is primarily people interested in really having a thriving career as a privacy professional. And there's data privacy and there's data security. In your opinion, what's the difference between data privacy and data
3: security? It's, to me, at the end of the day, the origin is still a third party gaining access to something. But from an individual standpoint, you look at big tech, right? And this is not unique, right? That's why Apple has come out. I don't know if you guys have seen the new Apple commercial stateside. We certainly see it where you can turn off the the apps and their ability to track you and things of that nature, right? Mm -hmm. So it's an acute issue. And if Apple is now advertising, and Apple, as we know, doesn't need to advertise anything because we're going to continue to buy iPhones no matter what, right? So they don't need to do it. But if they've done it, that means it's an acute issue that they're trying to deal with. From an individual standpoint, privacy is what they care about. If I walked over to any individual, right if I surveyed a thousand people and I said, hey, are you concerned about security right Just generally speaking security in the digital sense more often than not, apathy would take over and what do I mean by that they would basically say, nah Apple has my security in mind I've got you know my biometrics on my phone, Google makes me do all these two-factor things. I'm secure, I'm good, right? But if I say, do you care about privacy vis-a-vis these entities, it's a different mindset. And in fact, they do care about the privacy element because they're concerned about, well, wait, what can Apple see of mine that I am sharing with them or I'm using their platform for? So it changes the mindset. So individuals are acutely aware of privacy. They don't want Apple to know what they did yesterday And so that they get retargeted from an ad standpoint. I'm not picking an apple, right? Fill in your big tech company of choice. So privacy is alarming to individuals. It's something that they understand something, they appreciate something they care about. From an an enterprise standpoint, from a business standpoint, they don't view things through the lens of privacy. For them, they view things through the lens of security. How do I keep my perimeter secure so that an adversary, so an attacker cannot penetrate it? Right. How do I maintain the integrity of my system, my environment so that no one gets in? It's less so privacy. And it really is that security posture, that security mindset that, of course, they're not concerned about Apple reading their stuff because they're not using social media in the way that an individual is. But they are super concerned and laser focused on, hey, I need to make sure that my data remains secure from the outside world.
0: Thank you. That's a great explanation. And I'm sure all the privacy pros listening would really appreciate that. For us to just summarize what you've said in a nutshell is what you're saying is, look, hey, when you're in your role as a privacy professional, what you need to understand is two different things. So from the individual side, they're more interested in their privacy. They're more interested in how their information is going to be used, how it's going to be monitored, how it's going to be shared on an individual basis. But when you're representing the business, whether you have a client or you're in-house, the business is concerned about keeping that information safe keeping the information that we process, that we collect. How do we keep that safe? How do we protect that from going missing? How do we protect that from unauthorized access? And that's where data security comes in. And that's the primary difference, as far as you're concerned, between data privacy and data security. Now, the other interesting thing, Dimitri, is you said, look, even in security, there's a difference between information security and cyber security. And as privacy professionals who are so concerned about privacy, privacy, privacy all the time, we leave InfoSec to the InfoSec guys. But it'd be really great for you to help our audience out, help our listeners out by giving a bit more of a final understanding on the difference between information security and cybersecurity.
3: You know, you just mentioned the term infosec. You don't hear that term anymore. You hear cyber, 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 cyber. No one says infosec. That's to our collective detriment. Simply speaking, information security is a subset of cybersecurity, right? If you look up the definition of cybersecurity, right? You started in computer science course, you know, computer science 101 or something like that, that talks about cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is there to protect the systems, to protect the network, to protect the hardware, to protect the communications that are inbound and outbound, right? It's everything having to do with the perimeter, right? So if you think of cybersecurity as the castle, right with the really thick wall with the really tall fence with the really deep moat that is cybersecurity how do i keep the adversary from gaining access to my perimeter i want to keep them out right that's cybersecurity generally speaking information security is what's within that castle what's within the vault within that castle how do i protect this treasure that's being safeguarded in that vault within the castle right so That's the analogy. Now let's break it down and think about it in computer science terms, right? Mm. I have a network and we know that no matter how buttoned up your cybersecurity tech stack may be, no matter how good your policies and procedures may be, no matter how well you administer those policies and procedures, the weakest link in every cybersecurity program will fail eventually by virtue of the fact that there's a human involved in the process, right? no matter how many times you tell that individual, don't click on this link, don't open that email, double check before you act, they will inevitably click on that link, they will do something that will allow the adversary to gain access to your network to breach your system somehow. So that is cybersecurity. How do I prevent that attack from happening? Right. What the attacker does after the fact you know, yes, there are cybersecurity solutions that you know the intrusion detection, the the ability to really quarantine the attack. There are things that can be done, but ultimately, that cyber tech stack is there to prevent that adversary from gaining access to your systems. Hmm. Information security, being a subset of cybersecurity, must be laser focused on protecting the data. Right? You have to establish an information security program that assumes that the adversary has already penetrated, has made their way into the perimeter. That's the mindset. If you don't have that mindset, if you don't view information security through that lens, you've already failed. Because if you're walking around and saying there, but for the grace of God, I'm good, I've got it covered, you will suffer devastating results. There's no two ways about it. You have to build a program that just assumes from the start that an adversary has already Broken into that environment. Okay. And how do you do that? How do you focus on the data in a way that is disconnected from your cybersecurity controls? If they are connected, if your information security solutions are connected to your cybersecurity solutions and one of those fails, right? If you've propped up that building on one pillar and that pillar breaks, that building is going to collapse. You need multiple pillars and they cannot be connected. And therein lies the challenge right? And not only is it challenging from just a implementation standpoint, how do you implement these products, these processes in a way that doesn't deprecate the workflow, doesn't create all types of frictions? You still need your users to operate. You still need your users to be able to be productive, right? You can shut Mm -hmm. down completely from the internet, right? You can say, hey, we're not going to be connected at all, right? And you'll go out of business the next day right? We are a connected society and every business needs to be connected, but there are tons of challenges there. And, you know, the other part of this is cybersecurity, information security. One of the most thankless jobs in the world, unfortunately, is being that chief information security officer because no one's patting you on the back and saying, hey, you did a tremendous job today because we didn't get hacked. Yes. Right. The only time anyone's talking to you is after the fact, after the attack has happened and they're questioning you and saying, hey, why didn't you do this, that, and the other thing? And, you know, this poor professional is saying, well, remember when we had this discussion and I was asking for more budget so that I could deploy these additional tools? And you said no. And I said, I told you so. Well, here we are.
0: We can prevent all that with Atacama, can't we?
3: Some of it. You know, any solution that purports to be, you know, jack of all trades, you know, run away. That's Microsoft, right? Microsoft will sell you those E5, E7 licenses and say, we can do everything from soup to nuts. Uh, all you need is us. And Of course, you know, everyone uses Microsoft, but if you rely entirely, again, going back to that analogy with the one pillar, there's a fallacy there. You should not rely on one system. You should not rely on one approach to your solutions. That is very dangerous, especially with Microsoft with the fact that you can compromise an admin's credentials. And once you do, all types of issues can can result because of that.
2: So you mentioned a little bit about Microsoft being kind of a Jack of all trades, master of none. And how does a startup like yourselves, albeit a very successful startup, you know, raising 10 million, how do you compete with giants
3: such as Microsoft? That's actually one of the challenges for us, right? We get on the phone when we're presenting our solution to prospective companies, and they do ask that question. You know, they say, well, I have an E5 license, and with the E5 license, I get this, that, and the other thing. And you have to peel back that onion a little bit, and you have to explain to them, well, yeah but you know is this really doing everything right is it really providing you that security that you really need from the following standpoint and we hear it all the time you know companies tell us well i'm using microsoft bitlocker so I'm, i already have encryption right and we're like okay yes you do however you do realize that once your users log in everything is decrypted and by the way when was the last time a server was offline right this is not 1995 anymore right servers are online 247 365 so that is a tremendous challenge for us but you know the benefit of a solution like ours is we never come in to a security practitioner and say look we're going to supplant this tool that tool and this other tool we come in always explaining that we will supplement your existing Cyber tech stack, and you do in today's world where you have incredible attacks that are being perpetrated from thousands of miles away, and the attacks that we're seeing today is these attackers have become super sophisticated, right? They're no longer just stealing things and then trying to take advantage of some market, you know, economic factors based on the information that they're taking, right? They're either locking up your files, preventing you from using your files, right? The, the traditional ransomware attacks. Fast forward, those attacks have evolved to. A way, you know, gnarlier attack where they are now exfiltrating your files. And what they're doing is they're trying to exfiltrate files that have been entrusted to you, either by customers or, uh, you know, government. And they're saying, hey, if you don't pay this ransom, we're going to publish this online or on the dark web. So now you're saying to yourself, man, yeah, it sucks when I can't gain access to my files. But now the threat is files that have been entrusted to me, information that has been entrusted to me potentially is going to be published online. So, you know, those are the types of attacks that we have security guarantees, and that's one of them. And when you explain that, I don't know if you, you guys know the Pepsi challenge where, you know, you put blinders on and you taste Pepsi versus Coke. I'll take the Pepsi challenge with Microsoft any day, right? Because I know, and I have certain security guarantees that Microsoft does not.
2: That would be a very interesting YouTube video. You're doing the Pepsi challenge with a Microsoft. a bad idea. I'd definitely watch that. That's official. We'll challenge them. If anyone let's from go. Microsoft is listening, let's challenge them.
3: Times Square.
2: <laughs> yes. Jamal, can we have a company trip to New York? Let's do it.
0: Let's do it. Yeah, Will you go. let us know when, Jamila, make the arrangements for
2: the. <laughs> there we go. We'll be there supporting you, Dimitri. Excellent. In your introduction, we described you as a recovering attorney. So what is it that made you make the jump from law to data security?
3: So I actually took my first, you know, coding course uh, in 8th grade in middle school and have my entire life loved computer science, loved coding, always stuck with it. Obviously, I lost my way sometime after graduating college and went to law school and business school. And it's funny, if you think of law firms and the information that law firms are, are privy to, it's really everything out there, right? Law firms represent companies in every industry, every vertical. And more often than not, the information that's available to them is it's just outsized compared to any other industry, right? Any other company. And what I came across is in my practice of law was Just that, you know, I would on a daily basis see the fact that we would ingest terabytes, you know, ultimately petabytes of information belonging to others. And law firms, this has changed, obviously, but, you know, going back to, let's say, the early aughts, didn't focus on stuff. That was not a thing, you know, cybersecurity. Meanwhile, they're sitting on amazing information that to an adversary would be nothing short of the treasure trove. right? That would be the honeypot of information. And law firms, as we know, do suffer attacks. But for me, it was always a situation where, you know, following technology, understanding benefits of cybersecurity, the lax view of cybersecurity, the lax view of technology at law firms, their technology library, they're, they're always the last ones to integrate new technology, because it's budgetary, right? For them, they view it as an expense that doesn't really help them perform. But I perceived an opportunity in the market, I saw that that cybersecurity was not taken seriously by many organizations. And, you know, I made the leap, you know, I was lucky enough to, me and my co-founder, you know, build a tremendous team of computer engineers, right? You know, our team is phenomenal. They love cryptology. And the fact that we're working on something that is so complex on the back end, but so simple from a UX UI, you know, there's nothing else out there like it. And that to me, you know, the challenges. That you mentioned, you know, how do I deal with the fact that there's a Microsoft out there and, you know, who am I? Those that, that to an attorney building something as opposed to helping someone build something or after the fact, you know, something has gone really bad and now you're being called in to try to salvage the situation. It's a really big difference, but to be clear, I did enjoy practicing law. You know, I did it 15 years. I enjoyed my colleagues. I enjoyed the clients that I work with and it is, you know, incredibly respectable profession but to me it was just you know taking that leap and doing something which brings new challenges every day some of which keep me up at night in a positive way yeah uh, but nevertheless are extraordinarily challenging
0: I love it it's great I'm sure you're passionate about law to begin with you'd be able to do it for 15 years but then you found your new passion it's really inspiring to hear that you jumped in with both feet and you're really living the dream and doing what you love and
3: loving what yes. you do. I'll let you know how it works out at TBB.
2: We get a lot of people, I think, in the industry. We've had a few on our podcast who have started off in law, moved into data protection, data privacy. Are you seeing a lot of crossovers from when you worked in law to where you are now?
3: I don't know that I see a lot of crossover, but I definitely see a burgeoning practice area where a lot more law firms now have lawyers dedicated to cybersecurity. They have lawyers dedicated dedicated to privacy. They have lawyers dedicated to disaster response, right? You've been hacked, now what? Now you need to deal with the regulators. Now you need to deal with your customers. Now you need to follow these rules. The landscape has really changed. And I saw that evolve like the past 10 years has been an incredible uptick in the number of lawyers that are focused on privacy, cybersecurity, incident response. So those practices and lawyers that are focused on that space It's definitely it's unprecedented the growth in that particular field.
2: And and can you see that only growing in the future?
3: Absolutely. If you look at the rules and regulations that are being promulgated around the world, they're very difficult to navigate. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I'll give you an example. There's a regulation in New York that very few people know about. It's called the Shield Act, and the Shield Act basically says that if you do any business in New York, now how do you define business in New York? So if I'm an E commerce retailer in the Netherlands, and I sell something, you know, a customer in New York, well, guess what? I've done business in New York. I've never stepped foot in New York, but I've sold my goods to someone in New York. Therefore I've done business in New York. I'm now subject to this shield act. And the shield act says any information you collect from residents of New York, you need to safeguard. So it's very similar to GDPR and the Netherlands is already following GDPR. So you're probably okay in that regard. Right. But think about that on a global scale. Here's this esoteric rule promulgated in a state within the United States. And it basically says anyone doing business in this state with any of our residents is subject to this regulation. And if I surveyed the world and said, hey, how many of you know about this SHIELD Act in New York? People would be like, what are you talking about? In fact, people in New York don't know about the SHIELD Act. (laughs) What's going to happen is, as what happens with many regulations is, you know, regulation through enforcement or regulation through the benefit of hindsight. And the regulators, you know, they perceive an opportunity, you know, go after someone in an enforcement action, they're going to exert some kind of penalty or fine, and they're going to say, well, you should have known because this, the rule is, you know, clear cut, right, without providing any guidance, without really publicizing how to comply with this particular regulation. So. This is just the beginning. It really is the tip of the iceberg. I think we're going to see more regulations hopefully in the United States. I hope that the federal government comes out with something that is uniform across the country, similar to GDPR, as opposed to having to comply with, you know, different regulations, you know, state to state, which is always a nightmare in the United States, right? Having to comply with both federal and state-level regulations becomes a nightmare.
2: Do you think that is something that will happen? Do you think the government will introduce something at a federal level?
3: I do. I don't know if you saw what Biden did a couple of weeks ago. He came out with an executive order you know, to federal agencies primarily around how best to comply with cybersecurity um, and the need to take cybersecurity more seriously highlighted the fact that everyone should be following some kind of two-factor authentication model. He mentioned encryption multiple times for data at rest and data in transit. So these things are being taken more seriously, not just because the federal government has been, you think of solo wins recently, right? This is the reality. The adversaries are very intelligent. They're only getting better at what they do. And the fact is, you know, whether you're an individual or an entity, a corporation cybersecurity or government entity, for that matter, this is the reality. It's here to stay. It's going to get worse. There is no cure to this ailing problem that affects all of us globally. It'll continue. And by the way, a lot of these attacks, as we know, are perpetrated by nations. Right. So when you have a nation state really financing these attacks, it's a profitable business for these attackers.
2: Are they financing attacks on individuals or businesses and organizations and governments?
3: But I would say they're all intertwined, right? Because if you attack a government agency, you attack a business. I just got a letter from my accountant. Hey, we were hacked and your information was taken. Oh, by the way, here's a code to one of these monitoring sites and sign up for the next 12 months. And you should also freeze your credit agency. You know, she's like, really? It's horrible. So, yeah, everyone, no matter what, whether directly or indirectly, is going to be impacted. Right. So if a government agency that has my information gets attacked, who is the ultimate victim? yeah, the government agency, but no, you know, rolls down to me as the individual because now my information is out there. So this is a problem that's not easily solvable, but something that we as both individuals and as, you know, corporations, entities, enterprises need to deal with. Need to It needs to be front of mind. The budgets need to be there. And as they say, profession, as a privacy professional, and this is the field you want to be in, it will only continue to grow. And I think job security is certainly there if you want
2: it. And is there a difference that you're seeing in terms of when there are cybersecurity threats to an individual versus or for an organization? So for example, in the UK, because of the coronavirus, we've had a lot of rise in uh, text messaging scams and people clicking them and putting in their information. Uh, Royal Mail has been a victim of it. Is there a difference that you're seeing in? Is there certain cybersecurity crimes that are increasing?
3: The social engineering attacks uh, that are being perpetrated against individuals, right? uh, What you're hoping to accomplish at the end of the day is a little different, right? So the attacks may be similar, right? Where you get that link and it looks real, right? That email looks real. It's funny. I just read Facebook sued. I forget which company it was It will come to me that as part of its training, they registered certain domain names that look like a real Facebook domain, right? And the purpose behind that was to train the workforce or to train individuals, right? So that when you receive an email, don't just assume that it's a legitimate email, right? Um, And Facebook basically sued them and said, no, you can't do that. So it was kind of like it's trademark and I understand why Facebook did it, but you could also understand why this company was doing what they were doing. But ultimately, at the end of the day... These attacks are real, and whether they're being perpetrated on an individual, and certainly an uptick given the um, the COVID issue. But ultimately, the attack is different from the standpoint of when you attack an individual. What you're hoping to do is literally it's a smash and grab, right? Mm-hmm. How do I, you know, get this guy's pin code so I could take the money out of his bank and you know uh, get out of here? Whereas with an entity, you know, it's higher stakes, yeah. right? You're going to break in, and you're going to be clandestine with respect to what you're doing there, right? You're not going to smash and grab. You're going to stay there. You're going to stealthily look for the information, the honeypot. Once you find it, or you want to bide your time, and you want to exfiltrate, you know, certain data, and then basically tell them, "Oh, by the way, I have all this stuff, um, and here's the ransom." So the the outcome is different, but the attack surface, the attack vector is somewhat similar. It's
2: it's really interesting what you mentioned about the um, training. And the, the URLs that were similar to Facebook then um, at my university on Prime Day and Black Friday, they will send emails looking like they're from Amazon. And if you are a student who clicks on that link, you have to do mandatory IT training. So I, I got it, I found it on Prime Day. I was looking at it. I was thinking, I did buy something from Amazon, but I don't, this looks a bit fishy. Um, yeah.
3: Like, and that's what it yeah. is. Right. And that, that's what they try to do. Because look, you know, look, you're, you're busy, you're working throughout the course of the day. And, you know, an email comes in. I'm guilty of it. Right. I pay a short shrift. I basically look at it, you know, my other screen. I'm like, yeah, just go away. Yeah. Right. And so sometimes you get into trouble doing that legitimately. Right. Not necessarily cyber trouble. But, you know, yeah. somebody responds and says, what are you talking about? That's not what, <laughs> what I meant. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. You know, wasn't paying attention. But yeah, that's exactly what they're trying to do. It's like, oh, Amazon, you know, redeem your gift card. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, I'll redeem my $20 gift card. And all of a sudden, you know, your
2: exactly.
3: bank account has been siphoned.
2: Yeah, we've spoken a little bit about the um, cybersecurity threats to individuals, to organizations, but what are the kind of most dangerous ones? What are the ones that keep you up at night?
3: It's the ones that you don't know of. And this is what tends to happen with some of these big attacks, right? And by the way, it, you know, a lot of these attacks um, that we read about it's not even the entity that was the one that was attacked, right? So what tends to happen is it's a third-party service provider, right? And the third-party service provider is doing something with your systems or has access to your system somehow. And that's why there's a big push right now to make sure that a lot of these solutions that are SaaS-based are secure because if you know one of your service providers has been attacked, and the service provider has access to your systems, well, guess what? Now you've introduced that adversary into your systems unwittingly, unknowingly. And that's dangerous, right? And that's concerning because, okay, now I as a security professional have to ensure that not only are my systems buttoned up, but how do I ensure that my systems that are also engaged with these other systems that are intertwined, that are connected, that my users are using on a daily basis, are not used as an attack vector, as an entry point into my systems. So it amplifies the problem. And it's one thing to say, okay, I control my environment. I have a good sense of what's going on here. I have a good understanding of what my potential issues are. But now you have to also be appreciative and ask your third-party service providers that you're dealing with, how do I know that they're secure? How do I know that they're following the policies that they represented to me that they're following? So that, again, it's like, well, you know, I can attest to what I'm doing, but how do I attest to what someone else is doing? So very, very concerning. Man, you know, security practitioners, they really have it hard. On that topic,
0: I want to ask you a question. What was your initial reaction when you read about the Kaseya attack?
3: As everything, you know, as many of these attacks, I'm like, man, why are you not using our software It's my first? And I can show you the Slack channel with my commercial team you know, on a daily basis, I'll read my articles and I'll post it in the Slack channel and say, really? Right. There was one recent one with, I, it was Samsung and blah, blah, blah. And it was like terabytes of confidential sensitive information was siphoned off. And I'm, I'm like, really? Our software would have stopped that period full stop the end period. Stand behind that 1000%. But you know, I read a lot of these uh, articles and I say to myself, okay, uh, it's almost like the world is becoming desensitized, right? It's like, oh, just another attack, right? The apathy. Oh, well, nothing I can do about it. You know, from my standpoint, I, I start digging, I start looking. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm reading specifically as to what was attacked, how was it attacked? What are they saying? You know, what what systems were were breached, what are the potential implications? And sometimes a lot of these stories are more headline noise. And when you scratch the surface, it's actually not as bad as they're making it out to be. Whereas some of the more subtle ones or the ones that you don't read about, right? So California, for example, has the CCPA, which is the California Consumer Protection Act. And any company that you know has experienced any type of attack needs to not only on file with the California attorney general, basically submit a letter that explains everything that happen, that letter in turn needs to be sent out to every single customer whose information was compromised. And if you go on that website, on a daily basis, you'll see a dozen to two dozen letters. What does that mean? That means there are attacks that are being perpetrated. That don't rise to the level of headlines, but nevertheless are affecting thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and collectively millions of people on a daily basis, right? So, yeah, these big attacks happen, but it's the smaller ones. It's like it's my accountant that I'm concerned by, right? Right. If you guys, well, you guys are not like me because you guys have a much better tax system than we do. But with me, my accountant sends me my tax return and they password protect it, right? So they've encrypted it. And then the very next email, here's your password. Great. That was really secure. Thank you. Because now that your emails have been compromised, the adversary, well, he's not going to be able to look at two emails, will he? Um, He has my tax return that's encrypted with the password that you just sent in the same channel in which you transmitted the tax return. Brilliant. Thank you for that.
2: Yeah, that
0: doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It you doesn't. And I still Google. don't understand why companies insist on encrypting stuff only to send you the password in another email. It just completely baffles me.
3: Because they're looking at technology and security and privacy and uh, user experience from you know the standpoint of 1995. We are now dealing with so much information that is being sent back and forth so freely right? If you look at your daily emails, the number of files that you're transmitting back and forth, the detail of information that's being transmitted back and forth, you look at Slack. you look at all these different communication channels, right? Everything has ballooned into like, so that's it. That's our lives. By the way, if I, as an individual wanted to go into, um, you know, an agency and say, I am Dmitry Namorovsky, they would say, we don't know who you are. We don't care what you say. Prove to us digitally that you are who you claim to be, right? And I have to go through all these different hurdles in the digital realm to prove I am who I claim to be. Because if I, as an individual, came there and swore up and down, said, Hey, take a DNA test, I am Dimitri, nope, no good, yeah, don't care, absolutely
2: right? Well, <laughs> uh, Dimitri, what is the greatest challenge that you have faced in your career and how did you overcome it?
3: I'm still facing it. Is the only way I can answer that question. You know, when you leave a a job which offered incredible stability, and you jump in all the way up on the deep end, right, and become an entrepreneur, incredibly gratifying in certain respects. But the challenges are, I hope, surmountable. But I'm still, you know, climbing that mountain. And so, you know, like every startup founder, you hope to be successful. You want to become that unicorn. And so the, the challenges faced there are tremendous. And, you know, being that we we are a cybersecurity provider, right, a solution provider, it is also such a noisy space. There's so mm-hmm. much out there. You know, every computer science major thinks that they're going to come out to market with the newest innovative technology. And sometimes they have it, but because there's so much noise out there, because there are so many legacy products that these security professionals um, you know, think that they have solved for. You know, it's also important to mention something. Five years ago, if I went to college and said I want to become a chief information security officer, college would say, what, "You mean you want to be an IT professional?" No, no, no. Okay. I want to be a chief information security. That was not a thing. It's changing. You know, and more schools are offering those programs. But it's it's a relatively new profession, in the sense of being a security practitioner, cybersecurity practitioner. It's a relatively, because They would literally, companies would pick from the IT staff and say, well, you're an IT administrator, and now you're a head of security, but wait, that's not what you do understand. IT doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, and, And so, you know, those are really the challenges. And a lot of these folks that we deal with on a daily basis, you know, they're not purists. What I mean is they're not pure chief information security officers, right? And sometimes they look at things through the lens of an IT administrator and don't fully appreciate the risks whereas others are all over it. They get it, right? So I hope that answers the question, but yeah, hyper-challenging.
0: That completely makes sense. And the privacy industry is actually even more immature than the information security and the cybersecurity industry. And we're probably still 10 years behind where the cybersecurity space is now. So... When you even mention to people who don't know about data privacy, I'm a privacy professional, like, what is that? Oh, you in IT? And yeah. you just have to say, yeah, yeah, I'm in IT. And it's it's IT. nothing to do with IT. But right. this is it. And one of the things that we've noticed is we can see similar patterns in data privacy to what came before in cybersecurity. There was really until I'd say about 2018, there was no need for a full-time person focusing on privacy in an organization. But since around 2017, 2018, since the kickoff of the GDPR, privacy, there's privacy teams now. There's a teams of people in businesses all dedicated to focusing on privacy. Then you have another team focused on our information security. And some teams started off by bringing in privacy practitioners into their information security, the cybersecurity team. And now we can see that privacy is actually developing as its own discipline. And so it's quite fascinating to see how closely the privacy industry is following the cybersecurity industry.
3: That's right. Yeah, fully agree.
0: Our
2: last question uh, for you, Dimitri, before I give you the opportunity to ask Jamal a question. What are your top tips for privacy and security professionals who want to take their career to the next level?
3: It really dovetails with what Jamal just said, which is learn everything you can about what the current regulations are and where the pain points are for those companies trying to, deal with those regulations, right? And that's that's where the rubber meets the road, because you know if you're a professional, you need to understand your trade. And your trade is basically, right now, it's focused on complying with those regulations, right? So fully understanding the confines within which those regulations have been promulgated and how companies are dealing right, with those regulations, how they are complying with those regulations and what they need to do. What are the best practices? So to be a superstar in this space, right, you have to be informed. You have to be informed and know how, not only like what's required, but how do you resolve those requirements? How do you deal with those rules and regulations in a way where it makes sense, can actually be executable? And again, this is super important. And I think a lot of uh, professionals don't appreciate this. You cannot be a bull in a China shop. What do I mean by that? You cannot come into an organization, to the business people and say, we're going to change everything from the the workflow standpoint, because if we do it this way, we will be completely in compliance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have to remember that the business people are motivated by profit and to be motivated by profit, they're not going to want to change workflows. So you have to appreciate and have to work within their environment in a way that will allow them to continue to function, be productive, but still comply. So very challenging. But, you know, if you get it right, you will be a superstar, rock star in that space.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Dimitri. It's actually exactly what we teach at the Privacy Pros Academy is, number one, you need to be a master and you need to understand how, not just know knowledge by reading books, sending webinars, but understand how does this actually apply in my work? How does this apply in my role? How does this apply to the organization? And the only way to really learn how to apply is to attend live trainings, is to speak to people who know, is to find a mentor and to speak to experienced people who can really share those stories and those experiences with you. So that's the first part of it. And the second part of it is, as you said, is you can't just come in and expect to change everything or you can't just create cookie cutter templates that you've bought somewhere that you use somewhere and expect an organization to change everything to fit into that. You have to find bespoke solutions that are pragmatic and practical for that specific organization to address that specific problem so that you protect the organization from any reputational damage and any loss of data and you really protect them, but also by making sure that you impact and help their bottom line the business is there for a specific reason if it's a profitable business they're there to make profit if it's not a non-profit business they're there to make an impact and your sure. job is to come in and understand the privacy or the cyber security risks and really protect that business from exposing themselves and mitigate against any risk they have in the most pragmatic and practical way that makes the business continue and raises them to the next level
2: Great. That's a great way to
0: characterize it.
2: The last part of our podcast, Dimitri, it's over to you for a question. Anything you want to know about Jamal?
3: Two questions. The first one, is Ted Lasso as popular in the UK as it is in the United States?
2: I can answer that one because my parent, my mom and stepdad have been watching it on my Apple TV account, which I may now use at Akama to make sure they can't access my passwords anymore. Um, yes, I think it is. People are enjoying
0: it. Have you watched it, Jamal? No, I've not. What is it? Tell me, tell me more.
2: It's a American, I think he's an American, he played or he was an American football coach in the US and he's come over, it's a sitcom and he is coaching a British football team. I think it's in like Essex or something.
0: Oh, right. Okay. Quite
2: funny. It's yeah. What's it called the, again? Ted Lasso.
0: Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso. All right. I'll, I'll keep an eye out for you. I hardly watch the TV or TV programme. So but so when I have the time, me and the missus will definitely give it a go.
3: And then, so uh, another question is, you know, how do you take something out of the realm of academia and really convey the practical aspects of something, right? How do you take it out of, you know, sort of the book and bring it to life? So I would say the
0: best thing for that is to attend a live training. And basically that's where we say, okay, look, this is what the law says. or This is what the regulations say. This is what the academics say. But what does that mean in practice? And then talk about it and then talk about experiences where we can share, say, okay, this is how we applied in this situation. This is how we applied in that situation. And what would you do here? And really make sure that the academic side of it is implemented. And I think probably the most valuable thing about the IAPP training certifications that we do, and more importantly, through the practical assignments that we do in the Privacy Project Accelerator Program, is taking that academic knowledge and really breaking it down so they understand What does this mean when I go to practice? What does this mean in my practice as a privacy professional? And I think that's probably why we are seeing the kind of results we are with some of the students. People actually really value the fact that we're taking what they've learned in the books and sometimes they didn't even understand what they didn't understand or they misunderstood it. And when you apply it into practice, when you talk about how it applies in situations, in scenarios or in the previous examples, they can really get their mind around it and suddenly it starts coming alive for them. So hopefully that answers your question, Dimitri.
3: Great. Yes, thank you.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much both for joining us, Dimitri. We've really enjoyed speaking with you and finding out uh, a lot more about the world of cybersecurity and about Atacama. So thank you so much for joining us. Yes, yes. thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Dimitri. And if people want to find out more about Atacama, so we have professionals all over the world, and many of them will be looking for solutions to really help safeguard their businesses, and Atacama sounds like an ideal solution for them. How can they find out more information?
3: You can go to our website, which is kcom A-T-A-K-A-M-A.com, or feel free to uh, email us at info at atakama.com.
0: And if someone wants to link with you, are you available on LinkedIn
3: or how can they get I am on LinkedIn. Do? I am on LinkedIn. All
0: right. So we will make sure that we link all of those into the podcast. So you can stop listening to the podcast now and you can go into the bottom of the description and you can link in with dimitri make sure you also link into our facebook group uh, it's the privacy pros academy it's the private facebook group where we have tons of resources and knowledge and you get to network with like-minded people and i really look forward to meeting you there
2: great thank you so much if you
1: enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released.
0: Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro.
0: Please leave us a four or five star review.
1: And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast
0: or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about,
1: please send an email to team at kcnt.co.uk.
0: Until next time, peace be with you.